Macro View, episode 27. You're listening to the number one daily podcast focused on spreading the logic of liberty. I'm your host, Andrew Smith. Last night's episode, using a Crusoe economics thought experiment, we hashed out the purpose of savings, lending, and banking. We clearly showed the purpose of savings and how savings can increase the productivity of labor and how lending can transfer the benefit of savings to others who would like to increase the productivity of a society. We also introduced the role of a bank. Briefly, we're going to go back to Robinson Crusoe's Desert Island and discuss interest and then to show the value of equity versus debt. So just a quick refresher. We introduced a scenario where Crusoe had become extremely productive thanks to his savings and the ability to spend time building tools and technology. As a result, Crusoe had way more fish and coconuts than he possibly could have consumed. I guess he could have, but he had been gluttonous and he preferred to defer some of the, the, the consumption. He met Friday, his indigenous friend, and Friday knew how to gather the tools needed to set up a chicken farm and a garden and a fresh water reservoir. To do so, though, it was going to take... Friday, 15 days of work. Friday agreed to pay half of the take from his farm, garden, and reservoir back to Crusoe for 30 days after the 15-day period that it was going to take him to set it up. We assumed that the value of half the take from the farm, the garden, and the reservoirs were, by Crusoe's subjective value, worth the equivalent of one-fifteenth of the loan made to Friday, such that Crusoe was to receive a total of 100% return according to his subjective value at the end of the term of the loan, which was 45 days in total, with the payment beginning on the 16th day. Now, why would Robinson want such a return, an interest rate, we would call it? Why is he willing to defer his consumption for a future gain? Ultimately, it's because he values the 30 days worth of lettuce, tomatoes, chicken eggs, chickens, and fresh water over that 45-day period more than he values the 15 days worth of fish and coconuts immediately. And that's for whatever reason. It's subjective. For Friday, it's vice versa. Friday values the 15 days of fish and coconut immediately more than he values the 30 days worth of half of the take of his farm, garden, and reservoirs in the future. It's a little bit more difficult to understand interest in this sense, you know, without money prices and, you know, money price of interest. But we can clearly understand both the, the value to both sides of the lender and the, and the borrower. These are subjective time preferences or temporal values, uh, differences in temporal value. So ultimately, savings makes labor more productive by allowing time to be spent constructing what, what are known as capital goods, technologies, tools, etc. that make labor, a labor hour that much more productive. But the value to the saver and the value to the borrower are purely a subjective temporal value. It's a time preference, as we might call it. So something is worth more to one now than an even greater sum is worth in the future. And to the other, less now is worth less than more in the future. So they're able to get, they're willing to accept that, that difference. Now we're going to go over a different cash flow scheme for the investor, Crusoe in this scenario, when we get back. But first, I've got to introduce my listeners to a resource that all libertarians 
and libertarian-leaning folks have got to get involved with. So we'll be right back. All right, folks. So I know most, if not all, of my listeners are big believers in the free market. Some of my listeners may, from time to time, find themselves stumped by a statist. That's got to stop today, folks. We cannot let them embarrass us with pro-government intervention bumper sticker taglines and anti-free market memes. We need every single one of you to be able to clearly, concisely, and convincingly burn the statist strawmen. There's a resource for that. It's Tom Woods' Liberty Classroom. You can sign up today, and they have three different levels. Basic, Basic Plus, and Master. With the Master membership in particular, you'll gain the equivalent knowledge of if you were to take a PhD program in libertarian thought, if there were such a thing at any of the various youth indoctrination centers that we call universities. So go and sign up today and begin taking courses such as an introduction to logic, the history of economic thought, Austrian economics step-by-step, John Maynard Keynes' system and its fallacies, a ton of U.S. and Western civilization history courses, freedom's progress, the history of political thought, and much, much more. To learn more, go to macrovienews.com and click on the link in the top right corner titled Liberty Classroom. Once you've completed the master course, you're guaranteed to be better prepared to help me spread the logic of liberty. All right, we're back, folks. So let's assume that Crusoe does not just want 30 days worth of half of Friday's take after waiting 15 days. Let's also assume that it's actually going to take Friday 60 days before anything on his farm will produce more than he needs to just consume daily and survive. Let's also assume that if he invests half of his take from the farm or reinvests half of his take from the farm after those 60 days, and stick with me here, even though it's somewhat unrealistic to reinvest the produce from from a farm, just stick with me here. You can kind of understand it with the chickens and you can uh, expand your flock of chickens. And I know the 60 days is not, but stick with me. The construction of this scenario will actually make perfect sense for what we're trying to accomplish here. So if he reinvests half his take after those 60 days for the next 120 days, his take going forward would be triple what it is on the 60th day after the investment made by Crusoe. So let's then say that Friday is willing to give Crusoe after 180 days, after six months, 20% of his now triple take, you know, trip, triple what it was. Uh, after the, you know, in the, in the previous scenario, after 15 days, in this scenario, after 60 days, it's, it's tripled the amount that, 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 uh, that Friday is able to produce every day. So the, let's say that's the equivalent of 20% more than in the previous scenario where Crusoe was just getting paid back in full plus a rate of return over a 45 day period. And then he was done. It's 20% more than that. Than, than the daily take that Friday was going that, that Friday was going to pay to Crusoe. What it is it's sixty percent of Friday's take from the loan scenario from yesterday and today's little refresher. So instead of fifty percent of the take he's getting for for forty five days, he's getting the equivalent of sixty percent of the take from that scenario. So further, let's assume that Friday is not just going to give Crusoe twenty percent of his now tripled production for just 30 days, but he's going to give it to him forever. Okay. 
being extremely productive, having a ton of fish and coconuts, Crusoe assesses the deal and decides that his perpetual stream of fresh vegetables, fresh water, chicken eggs, and chicken is worth more to him than forgoing 15 days worth of fish and coconuts, of which he has plenty of, even if he doesn't begin to get paid back until six months out. This would be an equity scenario. In this scenario, Crusoe is taking a little bit more risk. You know, he isn't being paid back Im- immediately. It's possible that a storm comes and destroys pr- Friday's farm or reduces the overall take. The reward, however, is potentially significantly greater than in the scenario where he's just getting paid back a finite amount for, for the 45 days. And Crusoe has tons of fish and tons of coconut. He can afford to lose the 45 fish and the 45 coconuts. You know, he, he can just afford to lose them outright. After all, if you remember from last night, if you listen to last night's episode, Crusoe's fish trap that he built catches 50 fish per day with virtually no additional work. All he has to do is go and collect the fish when the tide goes out. So Crusoe accepts the deal, and six months later, he's rewarded with a perpetual stream of goodies coming from Friday's farm, garden, and water reservoirs. So now that we understand the cash flow and briefly the risk differences through our Crusoe economics thought experiment of debt and equity, sort of the differences between the two and, and the cash flow structures, it would make sense for us to just dive a little bit deeper into the concept of debt versus equity and their different roles. So debt is the less risky option. Debt offers lenders a definite and predictable stream of cash flow. The debt holder is also paid back fully plus interest to compensate for the subjective future value of the money that the lender desires at the end of the term of the debt. So by the end of the term, they're paid back fully plus a rate of interest. In our scenario from last night, the term was 45 days with payments beginning on the 16th day and the interest rate was 100% total return essentially. And that is Crusoe was paid back double his subjective value in Friday's take compared to his subjective value of the initial loan. And remember, this isn't in money prices. This is in different goods. So that's why I'm saying the subjective value of the two. Whereas if it were in money, you could just say that you know he lent him you know, $50 and he was paid back $100, right? But in, in, to, to, get, to be able to look at the value and, and the reason why these different structures exist, it makes sense to construct this Crusoe economics thought experiment. So in the event that the debt is not paid back also, the creditor, the lender that is, has the first rights to the assets of the borrower in the event of a bankruptcy or a liquidation. So the creditor gets paid back first. So aside from having a definite stream of predictable cash flows, in the event that the project that the lender is lending to the borrower to complete fails, the assets, if there are any, First, go to paying back the creditor's principal and interest owed. Debt is what we would say, debt is higher on the capital structure. Debt is a less risky investment. But in the event of success, debt is paid back a finite amount and equity is compensated at the time significantly more. Further, debt typically has a shorter period until it's paid back than equity does. So there's less time risk. And the value of the interest payments desired is much easier to determine for the lender. Now, I do need to introduce listeners to one more resource very quickly. And then when we get back to finish off tonight's episode, 
We're going to discuss where equity falls on a firm's capital structure. And then we're also going to introduce the concept of liquidity and the concept of an exchange and particularly a centralized exchange. So stick with us here. We're going to be right back. All right, everyone. So I've got another great resource for those of you that are saying, Andrew, you know, I'd love to do Tom Woods' master level courses on Liberty Classroom, but I really don't have the time for that right now. I need a crash course on Liberty and Austrian economics. Maybe you're saying to yourself, you know, Donald Trump was just inaugurated and my parents or my wife or my husband or someone else I love is way over the moon. All their free market so-called convictions were tossed out. They threw the baby out with the Obamas. And now that there's a Republican in the White House, that's all that matters. I need something fast. I need something that'll get me caught up in a day or at most in a week. Well, folks, I've got you covered. If you want to learn more in a single day or in a week about economics than most people will learn in a lifetime, you're going to want to head over to Mises.org and check out their absolutely free Mises Bootcamp. In five quick lessons, you'll learn more than enough to take down any of the various absurd defenses of government interference in the economy that your Republican loved ones may launch over the next four to eight years to justify the big spending and big government and all sorts of other interferences, tariffs, whatever may come about under the Trump administration. For your convenience, you'll find a link directly to the registration page for the Mises Bootcamp on tonight's show page. Stop waiting and harness the knowledge that you need today. All right, everybody, we're back, and that was the last message for tonight. So now that everybody understands the role of savings and borrowing, the bank, the structure of debt, where it falls in the event of a bankruptcy, it's now time to discuss equity. Equity is ownership. When you're an equity holder of a firm, you're not a lender. You're an owner, or someone might even call it a partner of a firm. Now, in, in the corporate structure, it's not necessarily a partner. There's a what's known as the corporate triangle of governance, where you have management, board of directors, and shareholders. I'm not going to get into all of that tonight. I'll, I'll save that for another episode. But Equity, like all owners of company, of a company, it entitles the holders of it to a share of the profits in proportion to their ownership, the percentage of their ownership. If the firm never becomes profitable, it's quite possible that the owners assume all the risk and lose all their money, their entire investment. Well, it's quite possible that the debt holders lose some of their money. Don't get me wrong there. If there's no assets worth anything at all, you know, they could potentially lose, debt holders could potentially lose all their money as well. But equity holders do not receive a penny in the event of bankruptcy until after all the creditors have been paid back in full. That's both principal and interest. And that's in the event of a bankruptcy and liquidity. We're going to discuss in greater details the bankruptcy process and what are known as distressed markets on episode 31. I actually misspoke last night. And I said that it would be on, on, on the third episode of this series. But tomorrow night's episode, sticking with the instruments used in the financial markets, I, I want to discuss complex securities. So, you know, uh, securities that are in between debt and equity and structured financial products and derivatives. So we're going to discuss that tomorrow. And then the fourth episode of this five-part series will be on the bankruptcy process and so-called distressed markets. So equity holders, though, also receive all of the upside. Bondholders get paid back a definite amount of principal and interest, 
even in the event of wild success and immense profitability. Equity holders, on the other hand, in the event of wild success and immense profitability, also receive the benefits of said success. The value of their equity goes way up, and they quite possibly receive significant dividends and a very large return on their investment. So how does an equity holder realize the increased value, the returns of the equity investment that they've made? In other words, how does an equity holder receive cash worth more than the initial outlay of cash that they made to take hold of the equity? The first and historically most common way that this occurs is through dividends. So a percentage of the proceeds that the firm brings in are paid out to equity holders. Eventually, as the firm becomes larger and larger and generates more and more proceeds, the dividends, those payouts, grow as well. And eventually, they provide the full value of the initial investment plus some serious returns. But let's say that the equity holder wants to receive a lump sum for his holdings. The only way to receive a, such a lump sum absent of a centralized exchange would be through decentralized exchange with a fellow individual or a group of fellow individuals. Now, accomplishing such a task absent the centralized exchange could be very, very difficult. You'd have to go around, you'd have to find somebody that wants to take that equity off your hands and is willing to, to pay you a value that you believe is worth more than the future stream of cash flows. And they would have to believe it's worth less than the future stream of cash flows in order for that exchange to work. Now, this is where the centralized exchange comes into play. Equity holders of a private company, if many of them wanted uh, you know, what we commonly refer to as liquidity, a better way to put it is if they wanted to exit their equity investments, they could petition the management to list the firm's equity on a centralized or often what we call public stock exchange. Now, all exchanges combined are what make up the stock market. And I personally carefully delimitate between the two. You know, often the two are used interchangeably. I typically are, am, am pretty careful about you know, delimitating between stock exchanges and all the stock exchanges combined, which, which is the stock market. So in the centralized exchange, individuals or groups of individuals that hold equity can offer to sell their equity to individuals or groups of individuals who'd like to purchase the equity of the firm that you know, we're discussing here. In doing so, the buyers express a subjective valuation for the future streams of stream of cash flows that is greater than the value of the sum of money in which they use to purchase the equity from the current holder and vice versa for the seller. The seller values the lump sum of money immediately more than the future stream of cash flow that the company is projected or expected to generate for its owners. So there are also centralized and I, I might add decentralized, fairly robust decentralized uh, compared to the equity markets, bond markets. In the bond market, the, the same holds true. The main difference is that the interest rate of the bond is typically fixed, and we're going to discuss tomorrow night uh, scenarios where it's not fixed, and the term of the bond is typically fixed as well. And again, we'll discuss scenarios where it's not fixed tomorrow night. So as such, the valuation process is based on a definite stream of future cash flows, whereas for equity, it's based on a projected or expected stream of future cash flows. In both cases, though, investors have to not only assess their personal time preference, but also assess the risk that they will be that 
the possibility, I guess, that they will not be paid back, right? They have to assess that risk that they may not be paid back or may not be paid back in full. Now, after this five-part series uh, is, is completed, I will be conducting a series of episodes on valuing equity, valuing debt, and how the valuation process is commonly understood and commonly misunderstood, different ways that different investors value different securities, and uh, you know why all of these differences sort of exist, and you know maybe discuss some of the best ways or the most commonly applied ways, etc. But now, in in the opening of yesterday's show, I claimed I made a bold claim, which I, I personally am more than willing to back up that financial markets are the single most important invention for human progress in the history of the world. So I want to take a little bit of time to qualify that statement. So as we saw with our Crusoe economics thought experiment, savings makes labor more productive. More savings provides more capital with which producers of capital goods can consume during the process of building tools and inventing technology that will then go on to increase productivity. As we saw with Robinson Crusoe, when he employed his savings to create tools and technology after completing the production of said tools and technology, his productivity increased dramatically and he found himself with an abundance of fish and coconuts. Now, on the large scale economy, this is true as well. We don't have time to to really dig into deeply the concept of marginal utility today. Um, I'll, I'll probably do an episode on that, but just briefly... The concept of marginal utility, it's the law of diminishing marginal utility is what it's technically called, states that every additional unit of a good that someone has is worth less in their ordinal scale of preferences. So the first unit of a good that somebody has is used to satisfy their most urgent or most satisfactory use. The second is used to satisfy their second most urgent or satisfactory use and so forth and so on. Now, if one can produce a greater and greater abundance of a certain good, thanks to the employing of capital goods, you know, tools and technology, the supply increases. That supply increase will necessarily drive the price down as consumers will more easily be able to satisfy their most urgent use. And as the second most urgent use ranks lower on their scale of preferences, will only purchase the second unit if it ranks higher than the amount of money that they would have to pay to obtain it. So the supply increase necessarily pushes prices lower than they otherwise would be. This also means with the increased supply and lower prices that in order for entrepreneurs to be willing to produce such a supply, the cost of producing such a supply must be lower or foreseen to be lower than the price for which consumers are willing to pay. I also don't really have time to get into the concept of value imputation onto the higher order goods or producer goods. But essentially the idea of value imputation is that the cost of producing an additional certain good with certain resources must by the entrepreneur's judgment be profitable based on the price that consumers are willing to pay for the final good. That the price that consumers are willing to pay for the final good gets imputed or gets passed on to the the price of higher order goods that go into the production of that consumer good. So otherwise, if, if, the, if it's not profitable, entrepreneurs will use the resources to allocate to the production of a more urgently demanded good or a good in which the employment of those resources at, at the cost at which consumers are imputing 
upon those resources will be profitable. Technology and capital goods, which can only be created in a sustainable fashion if there are savings, make it possible to produce more and more goods at lower and lower costs. If entrepreneurs anticipate that the price will drop with the increased supply, they have to also factor in what the cost of production would be to determine whether or not the resources and the technology being employed for the production of additional units of the good in question is the best use of those resources and technology. Now, financial markets, by matching a whole world of savers with a whole savers and investors, I might add, with a whole world of entrepreneurs, make possible the production of goods of higher and higher orders. That is, they make possible the production of technologies that produce technologies or tools that produce tools that then produce resources that then produce consumer goods. You get what I'm saying? So there's the, that's where the term higher order goods comes from. You might have producer goods of producer goods of producer goods that then go into the production of consumer goods. So consumer goods sometimes can be referred to and typically in the Austrian tradition are referred to as goods of the first order. Producer goods that are combined to make a consumer good, just those producer goods being combined to make a consumer good are goods of the second order. Producer goods that produce producer goods that are then used for consumer to produce consumer goods are goods of the third order and so forth and so on. Now, the production of fourth order and fifth order goods can be very risky. They can be long-term in nature and without an abundance of savings are not possible in a sustainable fashion. Further, without market set interest rates, entrepreneurs can be duped or conned into producing these third, fourth, and even higher order goods as a low interest rate is supposed to signify more savings or deferred consumption of real resources, meaning that there's extra real resources out there that can be consumed. That's what a low interest rate is supposed to signify to entrepreneurs. When the interest rate is manipulated though, when it's not allowed to play the vital role of matching savers to borrowers, you end up with a shortage of savers and a surplus of of borrowers. That's with a low interest rate or artificially low interest rate and vice versa vice versa with an artificially high interest rate. This leads to a misallocation of scarce scarce capital, which capital is a claim on real resources and thus leads to a misallocation of real resources. Now on episode 31, as I mentioned earlier, we're going to discuss this particular concept in much greater detail as we discuss the role of bankrupt losses, bankruptcy, and the so-called distressed market. Tomorrow night, we're going to be discussing more complex securities. So things like convertible bonds and preferred stock, things like securitized and structured financial products. And we're also going to discuss the derivatives market and the role that the the derivatives market plays. So don't miss out on any of the episodes. The best way to never miss out on an episode of the Macro View, if you're not listening on tonight's show page, visit macroviewnews.com and then subscribe to our email list so that you get notified when new episodes are released. Now, also, while you're on macroviewnews.com, don't forget to follow us on Twitter and on Facebook. You can find the links right there on our website. But that's not the most important. Most importantly, 
most importantly, do not forget to share us with your friends and family and help me to spread the logic of liberty. Hope everybody has a wonderful rest of your evening or day or whenever you happen to be catching up on tonight's episode. Take care, everybody. You have been listening to The Macro View. Tune in tomorrow night and every weeknight at 9.30 p.m. Pacific Time to help spread the logic of liberty.